Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about radical ideas, radical people, and radical stories at the intersection of ethics and artificial intelligence. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess. We are so excited to announce a new series of bonus episodes of the Radical AI podcast in partnership and collaboration with All Tech is Human. All Tech is Human is an accelerator for tech consideration and a hub for the responsible tech community. A part of how All Tech is Human is living into their mission during these increasingly digital times is by producing regular live stream events with experts in the AI ethics space who are pushing the status quo and interrogating issues of race, gender, class, and more in the technology sector. So slightly different than our normal weekly episodes and even our bonus interviews, the format for these episodes will feature selected audio from the previous week's All Tech is Human event, and the intro and outro of our episode will focus on both Dylan and I providing extra resources, further reading, commentary, and the action items that we deduced from the guest speaker's live stream. This series will continue on a regular every other week schedule, releasing on Sundays, and it will go at least through the end of the summer of 2020. This is an evolving partnership and a project, so we invite you to give us feedback on Twitter at RadicalAIPod, or feel free to email us at podcast at RadicalAI.org. So without further ado, we are so excited to present this live stream conversation featuring Mutale Nakande, who is the CEO of AI for the People and a fellow at the Digital Society Lab at Stanford, and Charlton McElwain, who is the author of Black Software, the Internet and Racial Justice from the Afronet to Black Lives Matter, as well as the Vice Provost for Faculty Engagement and Development at NYU. In this live stream, the guests engage with the question, how can we ensure that our technological systems do not reproduce existing inequalities? This conversation is being moderated by All Tech is Human's David Ryan Polgar. The organizational partner for this event is... The bridge. Hey everyone, and welcome to All Tech is Humans uh, live stream uh, series. Every two weeks, we are tackling some of the thorniest issues in tech society. And obviously, one of the major issues that we're trying to tackle right now is anti racism. How can we be anti racist with our technology and culture? I'm your host and moderator for today's discussion. My name is David Ryan Polgar. I'm the founder of All Tech is Human. All Tech is Human is an organization that accelerates tech consideration and is building out a hub for the responsible tech community. Also like to, to thank our partner for this, uh, for this discussion, which is The Bridge. They piece together the uh, technologists, policymakers, and politicians. So check them out at thebridgework.com and check us out at alltechishuman.org. So now let's bring on our renowned experts for today's discussion. Really excited to, to have this. And I also want to emphasize to everybody watching our live stream that you can always comment and we're going to see a bunch of the comments and bring a lot of them on screen. So first we have Mutali Nkunde. She is the CEO of AI for the People and fellow at the Digital Society Lab at Stanford. So welcome, Mutali. We also have Charlton McElwain. He is the author of Black Software, The Internet and Racial Justice from the Afronet to Black Lives Matter, and also a vice provost for faculty engagement and development at NYU. So welcome, Charlton. So actually to 
give us a little context. Uh, and Matali, we'll, we'll start with you. Uh, is there anything else that you, you're working on career-wise that you think is relevant for our discussion today? Yeah, so um, hi, everybody, and thank you for this kind invitation. Um, I started an organization so that I could commission research into the unique ways that advanced technical systems impact Black lives uh, and then develop interventions. And I just felt that that was a real gap in the civil society market. And one of the things that we're really interested in right now is the way that disinformation agents are operating specifically on the Twitter platform, but we mm -hmm. are looking across platforms. So um, that's the project that we're deeply engaged in. We are in the analysis, we have our data sets and we're, we were pretty excited to see Kanye West show up in, in some of that dialogue um, in recent days. So seeing where that goes and then when we're not trying to protect democracy, which is no small feat. Um, also delighted to work with you, David, on the being a recent member of the um, TikTok content moderation board. And on that on that point, uh, Motali, uh, since you also mentioned some of the research uh, on, on Twitter's platform, what would you say you're seeing as social media's level of responsibility towards tackling some of the anti-racism uh, and, and this overall kind of culture uh, do you have any kind of overall thoughts on, on social media's well, responsibility? I did. Um, I come from from policy. And while I was looking at policy advocacy around AI specifically, I was really interested in the way that Section 230 of the Communications mm -hmm. Act, Decency Act has been interpreted to really absolve tech companies of responsibility for the messages that are operating on their platform. And one of the things that I've always been interested is the spirit in which that that regulation was written and that becomes really really important from a legal perspective because the spirit of the law is as important of enforcement and when it was written my belief is it was written with goodwill mm -hmm. we would protect free speech on the internet with goodwill however when you're looking at some of these nefarious actors i do think that there is a space for social media companies themselves to step in so even in the process of this particular project we have watched in real time Twitter decide that they're going to label the president's tweets. Twitter decide that they are going to make sure people read things before they retweet. So it's not impossible, but the question becomes: Is the will is the will there? Mm -hmm. And then uh, Charlton, let's uh, bring you in onto the the conversation uh, outside of uh, Black Software. I'm I'm curious uh, any of the projects you're you're working on, or also even just some of the reception uh, right now with with your book. Yeah, thank you. Um... Uh, most of my um, free time, of which there's very little, uh, <laughs> my uh, my day job is really as a higher education administrator, um, working at an institution where uh, these issues are really front and center. That is thinking about inclusion, equity, uh, diversity, and thinking very much about technology. And so how do we build the uh, capacity for researchers, for faculty, for scholars to uh, elevate, think about the work of technology and what it means to uh, think about anti-racist technology, mm -hmm. to think about what it is, uh, what the impact of technology is in our social environment that's very much framed on and built on a foundation of race, racialization, racial inequality. Um, and so a lot of the work I do is really about uh, trying to build the capacity for 
for many scholars, but particularly for uh, Black voices, um, scholars of color, um, to be front and center uh, in this work. Um, these are voices that have always been around, but not uh, uh, very well uh, integrated into the public landscape and visibility. Mm -hmm. And so uh, much of what I try to do is to build spaces for uh, scholars of color to, uh, to, to speak and to really impact the social, political, policy landscape when it comes to these important questions about uh, race and technology. I know it's a large uh, question, Charlton, but uh, a lot of people are, are probably familiar with the the movie uh, Hidden Hidden Figures uh, about some of the the women who were influential on on NASA's uh, research. Uh, why why do you think this this problem has perpetuated for for so long, where a lot of Black voices were not uh, being kind of put front and center? Yeah, I think it's um, uh, historically it's deliberate. Um, it is. Uh, a way of curtailing what was seen to be uh, threatening voices, voices that really threatened um, our existing racial social order. And so I think it's uh, uh, it's no surprise when we look at uh, sort of the, the uh, rapid development of computing in the 50s, 60s and throughout, and the ways in which that particular moment when issues about race and civil rights really clashed with um, uh, issues of technology as they were emerging, and simply that uh, people that looked like Vitaly uh, and, and myself uh, were seen and defined at that time as threats, threats mm -hmm. to a system that wanted to protect a very particular order. And so I think in many respects, historically, um, uh, certain voices have been deliberately excluded um, and to the degree that they have not been, I think it's a process of um, simply building on what is there. If historically those voices are not there, people come to think that those voices are not there, not present, not valuable, um, and we don't go looking for them. Um, yeah. But it's, uh, it's amazing uh, what you find and who you find and the stories you find when you go looking for those uh, other voices. Well, just a, actually a case in point, I, I heard the other day, uh, someone said something about, hey, well, you know, there, there weren't a lot of uh, black cowboys. And I said, well, actually, no, that's uh, historically inaccurate. And that it's usually just the representation from Hollywood that has allowed us to have this perception that there weren't actually a lot of black cowboys when in fact, there there, there were. So I'm interested, uh, Mitali, we'll, we'll go over to you. I'm interested of what you see with the connection between uh, technology design and also culture, right? Is there a symbiotic relationship uh, between the two about uh, anti-racism, uh, you know, designing better, better technology? And also how does that, how does that get influenced by the overall culture that, that seems to, uh, you know, be ingrained right now in Silicon Valley specifically? So I will point out that Charlton is a cultural theorist so i'm gonna i'm gonna give it my shot um so and then we'll go back yeah yeah you know, this is we get some talented people with this live stream so it's always it's always good to uh to have the top experts please don't be too cruel but i am a lifelong journalist and, and communicator and within that role really spent the first 10 years at the bbc looking at the questions of how do we develop culture around technology but in the BBC context, it was white culture. It was white people. It was the way that white people socialize. 
what I've seen through my career, because I came into tech through DNI um, verticals, uh, specifically through Black Girls Code in a partnership that they had with Google. And when they were thinking about creating a culture for inclusivity within the company, it really did not go beyond hiring those people. And it really did not go beyond um, putting them on websites or um, you know, pushing them out. And I, I, I interfaced with external external affairs. So there was this huge visibility of me and the work I was doing, whereas in the engineering ranks and in the management ranks where decisions around product management, deployment, governance systems, and the way we were lobbying government were all heralded by um, white and Asian men, most primarily, and their goal was to maximize profit. So they weren't looking at race or racism. And when it was brought up, they had um, what um, Eduardo Bernardo Silva calls a colorblind approach to racism. And what that basically meant was there was no race, there was no racism. So we're not going to look for ways that these systems could be used. And myself and other minority voices were saying, yes, but if you sell this technology to a law enforcement agency and the law enforcement agency then uses this technology to control black bodies, it has a racialized impact. And then Kathy O'Neill um, was really the person that first influenced me back in 2016 to look at technical architecture. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a very long way of not answering your question because I actually haven't seen the development of technologies that are, that are optimized not to have um impacts on you know racist impacts i haven't seen anybody changing their training data i haven't seen anybody really willing to take financial hits even though you could mm -hmm. argue ibm tried with facial recognition mm -hmm. but what i have seen is an in lar increasingly larger group of scholars and then practitioners like myself who work with the academy um, who work with the academy to really expose that this is happening. And we just saw last month IBM, which wasn't doing very much work in facial recognition as it pertains to selling to police forces, making that critical link between technology, in this case, it was facial recognition and the way it impacts black people. Um, I don't know whether that was anti-racism because they were not a big player in that marketplace, but it did it did become a consideration in the Justice and Policing Act that was just entered to the House. So I would say, I mean, depending on how you feel about reform versus defund might be a different webcast. Mm -hmm. I would say that was at least that was the first time in, in my career that I had even seen really a nod for that outside of the bills that we entered. But the bills we entered were really to start the conversation and, and not get to law because we have a hostile um, Senate, and then obviously uh, our executive branch is, is what it is, and I'm not saying any more than that. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's uh, a good way to to uh, go to this question we just uh, received, and actually we're getting a, a ton of questions, so thank you for that, and keep them keep them coming. Uh, but Mitali, from one of the things that you mentioned, uh, and then actually I'll uh, send this over to, to Charlton, uh, so the question is exactly what happens after these individuals come into a company. So 
uh, to really kind of emphasize that question, it, it seems to be getting at the fact that, hey, it's one thing, especially as, as somebody mentioned, uh, diversity oftentimes is a corporate strategy. So if you are now inserting uh, more uh, individuals uh, who are being underrepresented uh, currently into the company, is that enough? Uh, or is there something else that, that needs to change? Uh, so Charlton, do you have any uh, thoughts on that? Yeah, and it goes back really to what uh, Mutale mentioned, which I think hit the nail on the head when we start to think about what does it mean um, to have diversity uh, in technology versus what does it mean to imagine, design, build, deploy anti-racist uh, technology. Uh, and I think those two things are worlds apart, particularly as uh, they've played out in uh, in our context. So whenever I get this question about what does what does anti-racist technology mean, what does that look like, uh, I cannot help but think back to um, uh, Roy Wilkins, who was once a president of the NAACP, um, and a particular op-ed that he wrote that I've I've read probably hundreds of times now and find so much significance and meaning in. And in there, there are a couple of quotes and I'll, I'll read it. And I think it sums up for me what it means to have and think about anti-racist technology. He said this, he said, after the computer has defined on tape the ideal Holstein, could it not turn its impersonal unprejudiced magic upon our ever agonizing race problem? Could it not, after digesting the facts with whites, which whites and blacks have fogged over for so long, give us an outline of our obligation? Instead of being a measure of the Negro's lag, cannot the computer become a guidepost to interracial justice and peace? Hmm. For me, when I think about that quote, I think about what Wilkins was talking about, and that is thinking about technological systems that get used to deliberately speak to questions and issues of race. That is, that we design and imagine tools that think about uh, uh, how to minimize the risk of harm to mm -hmm. racialized people, to communities of color. And more importantly, uh, to think about that larger question and opportunity, which is we thought about how to design technology to criminalize, to, uh, to, to jail, to exclude, to disenfranchise people, what might it look like to deliberately think about, imagine, and build technological systems that create opportunity, that uh, empower people of color, that ameliorate the structural systemic racism that has persisted and defined uh, the U.S. and in many respects the world. Um, and so it's that deliberateness and willingness to talk specifically about race and about race and social structure and mm -hmm. not just say, oh, we're gonna build technology that's good for everyone that uh, is fair. No, we have to be willing to thinking about how technology and race specifically uh, intersect. Uh, Americans are, are uh, infamously uh, terrible at uh, talking about race. I'm thinking specifically about uh, the situation a couple of years ago with Starbucks, where they tried to do, let's talk about race. They were writing on the cards. Uh, that did not go over well. Uh, I'm curious, Charlton and Metalli, what do you see as good digital tools or platforms to have these these really uh, meaningful but difficult conversations that we're saying as a society we need to have, but we're also spending a lot of our lives uh, online? 
Uh, so, Natalia, I'll, I'll, I'll start with you. Do you see, like, is there an ideal platform for this? Or, is there, or maybe is this something that can only happen in person? Or what, what, are you, what are you seeing on your end? So I don't know if there's an ideal platform, but I've certainly really enjoyed some of the podcasts that, mm-hmm. I've, that I've listened to. And Brene Brown did a really interesting, um, I think it's 40 Minutes, where she talks about shame. Yeah. And it's a podcast that is designed for white people to talk to white people who feel shame around racism as it relates to seeing George Floyd die. Mm -hmm. And also embarrassment that it took them to this moment to actually realize that this was happening. And she points out in that podcast how some steps that can be taken uh, to both address that but Mm -hmm. then what are good action points afterwards? And the reason that I really loved it was that she also talked about um, cancel culture, which is a big news story now with the the Harper's piece. And Mm -hmm. she really spoke about the need for minoritized and often attacked communities to be able to hold power to account using the internet and protecting that right and how you know, demonstrations against it are a form of racial silencing and racial, um, really racial hostility because the Mm -hmm. people that are canceling are often the weakest. They're often uh, black women online. And so I would definitely encourage people to seek out people that are working in the mental health space, people that are working in the psychology space who who also specialize in helping facilitate these conversations. One of the early papers I wrote was a paper called um, Advancing Racial Literacy in Tech. And it was really informed by my experiences within companies, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we did is that we borrowed a framework from Howard Stevenson, who's a psychologist at UPenn. And one of the things that he pointed out and we were able to use was this idea that in order to have that difficult conversation, you have to first acknowledge the history and the presence of racism. I mentioned colorblind racism in one of my earlier responses. If you do not think racism is happening, then you're probably not taking, you're not, you're not paying attention and that that's, that's poor mm-hmm. and you should seek to then think, get to the emotional part. What stops you talking about race? Because I would argue as a black woman, I don't necessarily walk around thinking about racial injustice every day, even though that has been the news cycle persistently over the last few months. But I'm certainly aware of the space that I'm in. There are places that I won't go. They're, you know, they're, they're um, even coming on here. I had to mm-hmm. be very clear about my boundaries and what, yeah. I accept and what I couldn't accept. And then once you have that understanding of the history and histories of race, you're probably not going to see black people as drug addicts because you'll know about the 1984 um, drug dr- anti-drug act, which made, you know, you for five grams of crack, you would get a minimum five year sentence. But for 500 grams of powder cocaine, which is the same drug, you would get the same sentence. So there is this policy racist you know, outcome. And then once you know all of that, you know racism exists, you know that it's uncomfortable, but you know how to manage your uncomfortability and lean into that, what's your action plan? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I think has been really beautiful in terms of the platform has been the Streets of America. They have been my favorite platform, watching (laughs) black and white people march to say Black Lives Matter beats any online platform. 
what activated them, why they do doing that work and follow them. But I would say that discomfort about race amongst white people is a conversation that should that white people need to have with each other because I think that there's healing there and I think that there can be power there and um, the impacts of anti-black racism on the black psyche and the black spirit and the black imagination is the work that black people need to do because we mm -hmm. need to heal from that. And uh, going back to one of the earlier questions about what happens when people are in companies, well, for AI for the people, we actually have a therapeutic practice where we invite in mental health professionals to help us do this work because it, we have to heal from the impacts of racism. And that's the only way for me at least to make sure that when I'm working with formerly incarcerated youth or um, folks who are marginalized, who I want to bring into this field, that we even are in this psychic space to, to reimagine the industry. I have an interesting question that uh, Kevin just brought up. Uh, Charlton, I'll, I'll have you go with this one first. Can technologies be truly anti-racist when they are so tied to commerce and consumption products? Uh, the classism in access to these tools is tied to the existing structures of suppression, question mark. So Charlton, what do you what do you think about that? Can technologies uh, be truly anti-racist given their, their tie-ins with, uh, with, with our structures? That's a great question, and it um, I, I hesitate to ask because it brings out the um, uh, the sort of pessimism uh, in me, and that uh, uh, folks often I think don't like to hear, and uh, and publishers have said don't really sell books very well. Um, <laughs> no need to be optimistic. We want the we're seeking the truth. We're <laughs> but, but I think it, it it does raise the the question. Um, and, you know, maybe later we'll talk a little bit about uh, facial recognition technology mm -hmm. and so forth. And I think this embodies that in many respects. That is, building anti-racist technology isn't something that you just jump into, you know, a, a studio, design studio, and decide you're going to build, right? Um, or to develop. It is as much about understanding a historical landscape and dynamics about race and exclusion uh, than it is perhaps anything else. And so thinking deeply about what that is and what that means, um, and then thinking about developing technology based on that, um, it, it's a hard sell because Ultimately, what you have to confront is, can we have anti-racist technologies while still living in a, uh, an environment that is deeply and fundamentally racist? Um, and I think the answer to that is really no, right? Um, and so when we think about steps that we can take in that direction, I think also those challenges are great. Those steps are big. There's no way to think about building anti-racist technology when we have technologists who don't even understand race or who refuse to talk about or think about the connections of race and technology. And so from my perspective, a first step to even thinking about anti-racist technology on a grand scale requires that computer scientists and engineers and technologists know much as much uh, about things like redlining and disparate impact theory of racial discrimination, histories of educational inequity, the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow and segregation and civil rights, as much as they know about 
how to code or design an algorithm or uh, build um, uh, uh, predictive uh, modeling. Um, and until that point, I think it is a high bar to think of truly building, designing, deploying anti-racist technologies. I think we can make steps, um, but uh, as a question, uh, questioner uh, uh, sort of insinuates, uh, it's no small task. So, Matali, I'll, I'll send it over to you. What would be some of those steps? How can we, to Charlton's point, if, if technologists are not having these uncomfortable conversations about race and are not thinking about uh, some of these entrenched systems that can be and should be dis dismantled, uh, how do we go about that? Is this about uh, training technologists, about uh, changing the curricula? What, what do you think are, are some of the uh, next steps? You have to dismantle capitalism to really get- That's a big statement, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Where's the question that the question is getting to, but if yeah. we're not going to dismantle capitalism, then we have to add new incentives. So one of the things that I worked on when I was in Congress was this idea of the Algorithmic Accountability Act. And we proposed really pie in the sky, because again, I'm a professional communicator and I'm interested in culture. And mm -hmm. um, we said, well, why don't we have an FDA type um, you know, an FDA type agency that tests these algorithms, the IP laws don't allow us to go in and see them because they're proprietary data. But if they are found to have racialized impact, we won't use them. And when we were pitching this to lawmakers, we actually used the example of the compass algorithm, which was famously written about by ProPublica. And the thing that was really interesting about that particular case was in 2014, then Attorney General Eric Holder actually wrote a paper in which he said, if we use risk scores in criminal justice, we are going to exacerbate mm -hmm. racial bias Do, and, and really sent out this missive that said to uh, judges and other folks that were using these tools, this is gonna make your decisions more racist. Do not buy them. Everybody ignored him, goes back to um, Charlton's earlier point around er the erasure of the black voice and the questioning of black expertise. The, um, go ahead, ProPublica, which is a journalistic outlet, tests 7,000 decisions of this algorithm for mm -hmm. racist impact. And they find that not only is the tool ineffective, only 20% of the people it predicted would go and commit future crimes went and did so, if you are Black, you are 77% more likely to be given a longer bail sentence based on this nonsense technology. And that's one thing we're not talking about. We're talking as if these technologies work. Often they do not. Compass mm -hmm. is one of many technologies that do not do what they say they're supposed to do. And so if we're thinking about, well, what were the incentives around that? Well, the incentive is to sell the algorithm. Whereas if we have antitrust laws, for example, that means that you can only build the thing that you know, Amazon, send me books, don't build facial recognition. If we also are testing algorithms for disparate, disparate impact and saying if it harms people in protected classes, those would be racialized, people who are negatively racialized, specifically black, you cannot sell this. If we say that you cannot have hate speech online and operate in this market, then you will get some of these changes. Um, not that I think the government is, is to be trusted or government should have all power. Um, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying with the present market structure, I don't see the incentives. Mm -hmm. 
So Charlton, uh, I'm going to ask you a question. I saw uh, in one of the comments, we're talking a lot about anti-racism, especially anti-racist technology. Uh, it's a term that you see in the media a ton right now. Uh, do we have any type of definition or what's your personal definition when you're thinking about uh, anti-racist technology? Yeah, I think it goes back um, to what I mentioned earlier. That is technologies that are um, designed and imagined um, to undo racism, right? So if we think back to Roy Rilkin's question, um, how can uh, the computer uh, solve our ever uh, existing race problem, right? And to Mutali's point, do we have incentive to ask that question? Mm -hmm. Do we have incentive to really move on that question? I think the answer is no, but it doesn't mean that it's not a valid question. It doesn't mean it's not one that we could and should be asking. That is, instead of what will make me and my company and my shareholders more money, what will help create a more racially just society? We could ask ourselves that question. We could imagine and build technologies with that as our guiding um, uh, motivation, uh, but uh, we don't because there is, uh, there is no uh, incentive to do so. Um, and I think the incentive structure and that overall motivation is, is what has to change. And again, is what makes me so uh, often pessimistic um, given the level of investment in technological disenfranchisement, disenfranchisement uh, that has been part of this country's uh, history. Um, and so I'm, I'm thinking about, um, I think it was a couple of years ago that the, the Intercept uh, came out with a story and it was essentially that uh, IBM was using NYPD camera footage, video footage, uh, for the purpose of building AI that would help identify criminal suspects based on skin color, right? And so the, the, the real aha moment of the story was, A, this was happening and this is mm -hmm. extremely problematic. The other is that uh, this was happening for five years under cover of darkness that this company and uh, the NYPD were colluding. And I remember reading that story at the time and kind of chuckling and saying, they missed a story altogether because this is not a five-year story. This is a 50-year one. And mm -hmm. the thing about a direct thread between IPM, the NYPD specifically, but IBM tech companies and uh, the criminal justice system uh, more broadly, that uh, there's been a direct line from the mid-60s up to the present that deeply invest in technological infrastructure designed specifically to ameliorate the threat posed by Black and Brown people to the existing racial order. And so to think about anti-racist technology in an environment where this motivation, this incentive to criminalize, to disenfranchise uh, is so deeply uh, ingrained in our structure. That is the kind of uh, hurdle, the kind of challenge that we have to, uh, uh, to really tackle. And it is, again, it's a big one. Well, that's the next question I want to ask. I'm seeing a lot of comments about facial recognition, which is obviously a very hot topic. And then, Matali, uh, you were recently on NPR uh, talking about some of the issues uh, around facial recognition. 
Uh, the question I have, though, uh, for you, Mitali, is oftentimes we're, we're talking about the accuracy of facial recognition, but there's the other question about, uh, which I think goes more to Tr Charlton's point, is should we even have the conversation about whether or not we want to be employing and deploying uh, facial recognition. Um, so where, where do you go with that question? Because on one hand, we, we have these statistics that always come out to say that uh, Asian Americans and, and black individuals are far more likely to be misidentified through facial recognition. But then you have the other situation of, okay, we could focus on improving facial recognition, or we could have the conversation about whether or not uh, these should even be deployed in, in uh, our communities. So where, where do you go with a, a question like that? Because it almost seems like they're, they're, uh, they're opposing kind of, kind of parts to this. So I think where, where I personally go, which is where Charlton has um, spoken about in terms of optimism, is that I challenge people to engage their radical imagination. Let's think about what facial recognition is used for. Facial recognition is used for the control of people, specifically black people. And I would argue that it doesn't just go back to the 60s and 70s. Um, our colleague, Simone Brown, in 1995, wrote a book called Dark Matters, where she speaks about how in New York in the 18th century, they had a lantern law. So at the time, lanterns were the technology of the day. And if you were out at night and you were over 14 and you were someone racialized as black, you were an, an enslaved person, you would have to hold a lantern up against your face because they were so scared about this threat of black people who were not free, who were living under white control, basically getting up into the middle of the night and um, causing havoc, which in my opinion, they totally should have every day no lanterns, but I wasn't there and it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. um, and so what I would say is that facial recognition is such, uh, and she argues this, I wouldn't say, she argues that facial recognition is part of that lineage. So mm -hmm. if you live in bed as I do, and I go past a basketball night, basketball, um, I can't even speak being in COVID, <laughs> where people play basketball and yeah, there is a court. Yep. That's the one. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to see this huge floodlight, right? Let's think about the people that are on basketball courts. These are typically young black boys. So I'm of the opinion of, well, why don't we, why don't we think of it? Why don't we live in a world where we are not trying to surveil black bodies? And mm -hmm. if we're going to ask that question, what are we using facial recognition for? We're using it really in the security business, really in the law enforcement business. You know, you can have a doorbell where you can see the person that comes to, to the door, but the company that produced the bill and therefore owns the image, because we do not own the IP of people that, that the person who takes the picture owns the IP. Mm -hmm. They have signed contracts with police forces across the country that says that your picture, your image, can be sold to them and then used for purposes of control and crime fighting. What if we didn't live in that world? What if we lived in a world where we had our, where we exercise our constitutional right to privacy? That's the world I'm interested in. And in mm -hmm. that world, we don't need facial recognition for those purposes. Now, where I have seen a great application of biometric technologies is in the animal world where there is a pilot project in Zimbabwe where they're using that same technology and they've repurposed it to um, differentiate the stripes on zebra because it's becoming an endangered species. And they're able to use those same technologies to track zebra, identify them, make sure that they can live in the wild. 
And I think that that's an excellent use of biometrics because you're getting around these issues of civil and human rights. Mm -hmm. And what you're doing is actually engaging in life-affirming activity. The same for the ocean would be a great, um, uh, you know, a great application. But in my view, the use of facial re recognition for the purposes of incrimination and control should not be used on human subjects. And I'm famous to go for going to tech industries and saying diversity and inclusion, please do not include me in my own degradation. Do that's not diversity and inclusion. Do not include me in data sets that will be used to turn around to criminalize mm -hmm. people that look at me. Find something better to do. And it doesn't even work. So we have a lot of uh, technologists who are, are tuning in uh, today and, and watching and listening. So one question, uh, as we're kind of uh, nearing the end uh, of our time together, is uh, uh, this individual would love to hear more about practical things that can be taken on board by technologists to build their anti-racist knowledge. Where do they start? So we've you know, clearly pointed out that the status quo is uh, breaking or not sustainable. So where do you where do you recommend, uh, Charlton? I'll start with you. Where do you recommend for these technologists to to learn more about this and to uh, improve? Well, I'll um, I'll point out one uh, group that I've had the good fortune of helping to uh, found and sustain, which is the Center for Critical Race and Digital Studies. Um, there you find uh, 60, 70, 80 um, scholars of color. Um, who are doing uh, this work, who deliberately think about the intersections of uh, race, technology, power, inequality, um, and do so from a variety of vantage points. Uh, we are social scientists, computer scientists, artists, um, many, many different um, uh, lawyers, journalists, mm -hmm. data scientists, etc. Um, and so I think that is a, a place, um, uh, easy look up uh, on, on Google to, to find us and you find uh, the work of all of these uh, great people who have been writing many for many years, other uh, newer voices, uh, but all who are doing this work and do so in a very accessible uh, way. Um, we have uh, on the site a syllabus that we put together uh, a year or so ago, which is a kind of, if you're going to start into this world, here are some uh, basics in terms of what to read, what to be thinking about, questions to be asking. Um, and so I think that's a good place to start. Find great uh, voices, people of color, and read their work, talk about them, utilize them, discuss them uh, in the workplace amongst the technologist colleagues, uh, et cetera. I think our, our final question before we uh, start wrapping it up, uh, Mitali, uh, with a lot of your work for AI for the People, it's focused on uh, solving the uh, underrepresentation problem in the tech industry by 2030. Uh, what do you what do you see as as some of the major steps or, or hurdles with, uh, with with solving this this issue? So. Um... Many steps and hurdles, but we we do it in three very systematic ways. I've actually been really lucky this year to have a partnership with NYU, so I made my first hire, um, and we used the syllabus that Charlton referred to because she had been on campus for four years, graduated, and never been able to take a class. 
um, in this area. So it was very um, important for me to bring people up to speed. But we, from a programmatic standpoint, we, um, as I said, conduct research into these questions specifically and do our own fundraising around those so that we can control the budgets and make sure that scholars that we can pull in to um, assist us with that work. And we have used the Critical Race and Digital Studies Network for that. We also um, have a we have a racial justice lens to the mm -hmm. way we organize our workspace. So they, as I was saying, we partner with the Social Action Lab at Columbia University, and they're a group of um, digital social workers that come in and help us think about, well, how do we look at a video of a Black person dying? Because that is very harmful to us. To us, how do we how do we communicate it out and create best practices for mm -hmm. film, video, journalistic audiences to make sure that the dignity of Black death is is maintained? We watched Mike Brown's body for four hours on mm -hmm. the ground. Why are we still seeing that? We saw Philando Castro. So we're looking at best practices. We also um, interface with television, film, journalism, visual. Um, media so that people can see us and see the work that we do and then hopefully want to join us. And then this year I did some guest lecturing again at NYU Stern mm -hmm. and um, in their kind of business and human rights courses, they had not heard of social entrepreneurship in this um, in this area and had wanted to join. So I think it's the combination of the right projects, the right work environment, the right partnerships, and then mm -hmm. having a learning community even within. So as we hire, we are putting we're putting folks through this training. And our idea is that we can create leadership because I'm certainly the product of investment by Charlton specifically, but even others Mm -hmm. who were willing to help me learn this, but then have been able to learn how to fund myself, sustain myself, and been in really prestigious environments that are completely hostile to the idea that I would want to do work on race and technology. So creating a physical space where that can happen. And then hopefully scaling ourselves. Mm -hmm. you know, AI for the People started in Brooklyn, New York. There's no reason why it can't be in Paris. There's no reason why it can't be in Mumbai. There's no reason why it can't be in Lusaka. I'm Zambian. Why not mm -hmm. have it where I'm from? So, Matali, for people who are uh, watching and listening, where can people get in touch with you uh, to, to learn more about your work uh, and especially uh, to, to hopefully get involved? Okay, so this you're, you're going to laugh. Like, for all the fire I came from, I didn't think I'd be successful, so I'm still building a site, believe it or not. <laughs> I didn't. I really, I, I, I didn't think I'd get one penny. I didn't. I mean, that's a different webcast, but I really didn't think I'd be successful. So they can follow me on Twitter, mm -hmm. which is at, at my name. We are building a site, which will be www.raceandtech.org. And they can, in your newsletter, I think mm -hmm. through you, David, is a great way um, to reach me, you know, we're kind of comrades, <laughs> as it were, and we're we're in touch. I think that you're a great person. And then I actually sit on the critical race uh, website that Charlton spoke to me about. They have they actually they have my picture, they have all my information, and they keep my latest work updated um, as well, which is really important. And I write, I um, I write 
<laughs> I write, I'm very prolific. So mm -hmm. I just had something come out in Harvard African-American policy review called automated anti-blackness, which looked at facial recognition, but I've written on other things and I have something coming up in Harvard's misinformation review as well about my latest project. Terrific. And, and like you said, uh, we'll include all this with uh, our All Tick is Human uh, newsletter that, that goes out uh, a couple times a month. And then Charlton, what about uh, yourself? Do you have any closing thoughts? And also, where can people uh, buy your book, Black Software, and where can people stay in touch with, with some of your great work? Thank you. Um, as the sort of closing, I would just say we've been uh, at this juncture, this moment before. There was a time 50, 50 plus years ago where we uh, could think about the intersection of race and technology and what the path forward looked like. We made the wrong decisions. Uh, we are seeing the re repercussions of that every day uh, today. I think our pace of technological advancement is uh, continuing, ramping up uh, in many ways. Uh, and so we have a moment to decide again, what will our future look like? And so I think um, I would uh, have it incumbent on all of us to think more deeply about the intersection of race, technology, and our future. Um, you can find me um, at on Twitter uh, at C McElwain, C M C I L W A I N. Mm -hmm. um, you can find me uh, at charltonmcelwain.com, uh, my personal website. Um, and you can find me and many other uh, folks and voices that are critical to this work uh, at Center, or I should say criticalracedigitalstudies.com, the Center for Critical Race and Digital Studies. Um, and so uh, we are there. Thank you so much to David Ryan Polgar and All Tech is Human for putting on this event and for Matali and Charlton's wonderful expertise on the subject. The live stream may be over, but there are many ways that each of us can take action. We are going to debrief our biggest takeaways from the live stream, including specific actions that all of you can take and resources to continue the conversation. The first action item that we are reflecting on is for everyone. This action item is to talk about race. As Mutali encouraged all of us, it's important for us to dig into the discomfort that you may feel about race. And everyone, especially white people, should be asking themselves, what stops you from talking about race? The second action item is for technologists. For designers and decision makers in the tech industry, think of the role of your technologies. Consider if your technology is promoting diversity versus anti-racism versus being a guidepost for interracial justice and what the intent versus the impact might be for each of those decisions. For coders, an action item is to learn about critical race theory, engage with the scholarship, and think of the unintended consequences of your code. The third action item is for policymakers. Consider advocating more widely for antitrust laws when it comes to large tech companies. And if you'd like an example to use, think about a company like Amazon that originally was just selling items to consumers on an online platform. And if they should be playing a role in selling something like facial recognition software to police departments. 
also consider changing the incentive for technology companies. Should the incentive for our technology creation be capitalism or should it be societal welfare? And finally, the fourth action item is for educators. If you are an educator in a technology space, consider including critical race theory in your classroom. And if you'd like a resource on this, take a look at Charlton's syllabus. It's important to incorporate interdisciplinary collaboration and discussion throughout the entire curriculum of computer science. And I think where we want to begin is in that first action item, which sounds like it, it should be the simplest, but it can be the most difficult, which is what stops us from talking about race and what's stopped our country and the United States and societies around the world from being able to talk about race, especially from the the white perspective. Um, and I know from my own experience and from speaking with folks that there can just be so much shame and so many barriers and so much discomfort uh, around this topic. And I think right now, especially when there's so much in the public space of uh, folks from across many different backgrounds and disciplines talking about what accountability can look like and maybe even what reparations can look like or just what does it mean for us as a society and especially, again, as, as white people in a society to take accountability and responsibility for hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years of racially based oppression. Um, and I think that, again, this is something that that can sound simple, right? Just talk about race. Just like, just name it. Just name the thing that's happening right now and that's been happening for so long in racially based oppressions that have been embedded into our systems and into our technologies. But it can be so darn difficult to even just say that and to even just name that. And even, you know, right now where people are naming that out, out in the world, including our guests today and so many other visionary folks who are taking that leadership, it can't stop here, right? Like we have to take it beyond. We have to keep talking about it because that can be one of the first things that drops away, right? In our conversations, because it can be uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for us as two white hosts to even try to figure out, you know, how do we want to talk about this? But we need to keep talking about it and, and stumbling through and hopefully getting some gentle nudges in the right direction when we go astray, because it is a risk, right? It's a risk to begin this conversation. But that I think is is the takeaway that we most want you all to hear as listeners to like keep the conversation going and, and keep, uh, use whatever word you want, you know, brave or uh, have some courage or take some risk, but just like keep that conversation going. Again, especially when we're talking about technology and these technological spaces, because for me, Personally, I learned so much from this conversation about this concept of designing anti-racist technologies uh, and technologies that are designed and imagined to undo racism, like not just technologies that are like not making racism worse, <laughs> right? But designing technologies and thinking about using that, what, that radical imagination about designing technologies that are not just harm reduction in terms of being anti-racist, but actually being anti-racist, actually being liberative, actually focusing our design on that as an explicit goal and not just this extra thing that can come later when we're talking about ethics, when we're going to launch our technologies to the public. But that's something that's really like central 
like designing for anti-racism, what would that look like? Yeah, definitely. And I think it's just so important, like you said, to just be having these conversations in general. And the conversation and the discussion needs to start somewhere. And the way I think of it, too, I feel like there's multiple kinds of conversations that we can be having here. So there's the conversation with ourself, and we ask ourselves, well, what stops me from talking about race? And what is my relationship with race? And why? And then we can talk with those in our immediate circles. So if you're a parent, talking to your child about race or talking to your spouse, your partner, your, your, um, you know, your siblings, your parents, uh, your friends in your close circles. And then uh, taking that one step further, talking to those in your community and talking to those who you interact with every day and seeing how race plays into your interactions. And if you are an educator, especially, this is something that hits close to home for me, thinking about how you can include this conversation about race in the classroom in a productive way. Because as Mutali said herself, you know, colorblindness is not a productive way to discuss race or to approach the issues of oppression when it comes to race. We need to acknowledge that this exists and that racism exists and we need to create safe spaces where we can have this dialogue. And one of the one of the best places I personally think to have this dialogue is in the classroom because it naturally lends itself to discussion and interdisciplinary discussion. And I speak from the heart right now because I'm, I'm currently trying to incorporate some of these harder ethical discussions in the computer science classroom that I'm teaching this summer. And uh, it's definitely, it's not easy to try to incorporate issues of, you know, fairness and bias and oppression and power and also race and teaching that along with stuff like algorithms and data types and data structures and machine learning. But it's possible and there are resources out there and there shouldn't be barriers to entry if we all actually make an effort to make this happen. Yeah. And it brings to mind like what what makes this all so difficult, right? And there was a great conversation um, today about just how deep and institutionalized these problems go. This isn't just a matter of not having the right data in facial recognition technology. I think it was Mutali who was talking about another theorist who uh, wrote about the, the lantern law um, and then this whole lineage of control over black and brown bodies throughout the history of technology, like whatever the technology of the day was. And uh, that's that's not a coincidence, right? It, it's something that has occurred and shown up in every part of history, particularly in this country, but across the world, if you talk about the history of colonization and the role technology played in that. So whether it's, it's a lantern or facial recognition, until we get to the core, until we get to the root, and as Mutali said, radically reimagine what this all can look like uh we're we're not gonna we're just gonna end up even if we have the best intentions reproducing these systems of oppression and so i want to i think end us where uh, charlton ended us which is that this is a moment to decide again what our future will look like and can look like and it's up to us those of us who are listening to this and those of us who are in any position of power or dialogue around these issues uh, to d 
determine exactly how are we going to bring healing to this world? How are we going to enter into these conversations with humility? How are we going to engage with the pace of technological advancement? How are we going to say no sometimes when no is really hard to say when there's an exciting new technology? Uh, How are we going to say yes to things that might transform the world and and, uh, the way technology relates to race for the better? How are we going to do these things? And, And it's up to all of us. And of course, the conversation does not stop here. So for each of the episodes in our series with All Tech is Human, you can find a detailed Continue the Conversation page on our website, RadicalAI.org. For each episode, we'll include all of the action items that we just debriefed, as well as annotated resources that were mentioned by the guest speakers during the live stream, different ways that you can get involved relevant podcast episodes, books, and other publications, and really just ways to take action. And if you have ideas for resources to include, we invite you to share them on our Continue the Conversation page as a comment. Our goal in this project and in partnering with All Tech is Human is to build a space together that helps raise awareness and helps us all take action on these important, sometimes difficult, and challenging issues. So the conversation doesn't stop here, and we would love to hear from you. For more information on today's show, please visit the Continue the Conversation page at RadicalAI.org. We want to again thank All Tech is Human, and we are so excited to continue this partnership with them going forward. If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. As always, join our conversation on Twitter at Radical AI Pod. And as always, as always, stay radical.